Hey everyone, today we bring you Dr. Jeannie Kelly, Assistant Professor in the Department of OBGYN and the Medical Director of Labor and Delivery. She is eating her mom's words, who started warning her about COVID-19 back in December, and she'll share that along with um, the inspirational um, story of her father and his story of bringing his family to America. Jeannie has a lovely story to share, and we are so lucky to have her in our department. Uh, she'll outline some of the things she's been through on labor and delivery with COVID-19. We'll talk about Medicaid expansion, um, her perspective on that coming from a state which didn't have as many health care access issues as we do here in Missouri. Um, she's wonderful. I had a blast talking to her, and please enjoy this podcast. Thank you. I'm here. Can you hear me? Absolutely. Hey, Jeannie, how are you? Good. This worked nicely. Wow. (laughs) It's pretty slick. Oh, thanks so much for joining. Of course. Uh, How's the weekend going? Yeah, it's going all right. (laughs) The kids are crazy, but, uh, you know, it's sunny and they've been able to get outside and run around. So it's been okay. Fantastic. And then you're able to just very timely um, nap time, huh? Yes. <laughs> I do live they all from, nap at the same time? Or they they do. That well. is pretty much the secret to my ability to survive. There's <laughs> <laughs> mandatory nap time in this house. Fantastic. How long do they sleep? They're actually pretty good nappers. All of them sleep for a couple hours in the middle of the day. That is great. And isn't that, isn't that it, it makes me so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> Mid-afternoon naps. <laughs> yes. Yes, oh, but oh, so tell us about your kids. Let's start with them. How um, how old are they? And um, yeah, so my oldest is five, uh, Brennan, and then my mm-hmm. middle is two and a half, Marin, and then Callan is my youngest, who just yeah. turned one. Okay, wow, one, yes. Gosh, that year's flown by, hasn't it? <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> my husband just told somebody who asked that he was ten months old um, because we, you know, third child syndrome. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, this, so we kind of want to cover everything um, in this nap time, <laughs> but um, you know, certainly this past few months has been a whirlwind. Um, probably as a department, we've gotten, I don't know how many emails you've had to send out with <laughs> algorithms and everything, but thank you so much for all that you've done for L and D and the COVID situation and, getting everybody um, in line there, but um, can you tell us a little bit about that? How'd that come up for you? And how is that? Sure. Um, I mean, I, I just took over the medical directorship of um, and I think I was, if anything, the COVID sort of pandemic has helped me learn how to be a good medical director because mm. it was a very, very vertical learning slope to figure out who's who among, you know, the labor and delivery leadership and how to most efficiently get things done. Um, But, you know, I I remember distinctly, um, uh, you know, my mom, I'm I'm Chinese, my mother, who is, you know, avid follower of Chinese social media, Mm. talking about um, coronavirus and COVID as early as December of this year. And I totally um, poo-pooed her, like, mom, this is not a problem. Like, stop reading all the sensationalized Chinese wow. social media stuff. It's not a problem. 
flu is our main problem. Get your flu shot. Uh, you know, I've eaten yeah. just about every single word that um, I've said to her. <laughs> and I still distinctly remember that uh, week in March, I was supposed to be going to vacation. Um, and we essentially, that's kind of the week that everything exploded, yes. right? Yes. That everything shut down um, and that we suddenly realized that it was in our backyard, um, you know, here. Yes. And so <laughs> that whole week uh, we stayed home and I was essentially on my computer the entire time trying to figure out um, how to keep us safe and our patients safe. And uh, I feel like I've kind of been in this like spiral <laughs> ever since that week. Um, everything just changes so fast and we um, just have to be on top of it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you tell us maybe biggest lessons learned? Um, I know there are so many, so it's hard to, to put that into a quick summary, but what are the things that you've yeah. taken away from this, like now looking at it in July. Um, mm -hmm. um, I think a dependable, flexible team mm -hmm. has been pretty much the um, key to us, not just completely going under. Um, <laughs> I, I think, uh, you know, from us, from anesthesia, from critical care, from the barn side with, you know, nursing management and leadership, um, from the women and infants leadership, I think we have a really strong team here at Barnes. Yes. So I think we have a really strong team here at Barnes and at WashU. Um, everyone from, you know, the nursing management, the nursing leadership, the women and infants leadership, and of course, um, on the WashU side with anesthesia and critical care, um, you know, they, I think everyone really rose to the challenge and, you know, we're still struggling with the same things, um, guidelines, recommendations, uh, policies from the Barnes BJC and the hospital levels have changed so frequently that, you know, we feel like we're always sort of scrambling to catch up and make sure our policies reflect, you know, the everyone else's, um, that they reflect the CDC recommendations, the WHO recommendations, et cetera, et cetera. But having people who are in the same room together, who all have the same goal, um, and are flexible and understand that this is kind of a rapidly changing situation. I think that really has been the key to us being able to do what we've done in the last few months. Yeah. Now, are the tents still set? Uh, no, the tent actually how, came down. How did the tents come? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That was my understanding. Tell yeah. us about the tent and <laughs> yeah. um, what happened then went away. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Parkview Tower, where our um, inpatient uh, you know, inpatient stays are, it's kind of a unique situation. Uh, the entire building is positive pressure. And so the kind of immunocompromised patients are all in this building together, the pregnant patients and the ICU, specifically the bone marrow transplant and the um, hematology um, groups are kind of all in this positive pressure building, um, which is designed to push air out of each room into the hallways and then kind of, you know, into the shared space because you're trying to get rid of all the whatever yeah. germs in the air of a, of an immunocompromised patient. Obviously, in a place where you're trying to contain infection, this is um, problematic. And I think 
that's been one of our biggest mm-hmm. challenges is to figure out how to make Parkview Tower run during COVID. And so the tent came about because in the beginning, um, the hospital really did not want any COVID patients in Parkview Tower. You know, in the beginning, we didn't really know how contagious this could or would be in a positive pressure building. You did not want one positive patient basically, you know, spreading all of that COVID out of that one room and destroying a bone marrow transplant unit completely. Um, and so the thought, the, the goal was to basically direct anybody who could possibly have COVID away from Parkview Tower. And that was kind of the thought behind the tent was it was kind of a stop check in front of this positive pressure building with a lot of vulnerable patients um, for a way for us to assess yeah. patients and figure out if we could bring them into that building or not. I think over the last couple of months, um, number one, thankfully, so far, our numbers have been on the lower side that we're able to kind of um, mm-hmm. handle the capacity in our negative pressure rooms, number one. And number two, um, we have not seen like a huge sort of explosion of infection from inadvertent positive pressure placement. And so, um, and we you know, are able yeah. to kind of handle the capacity in our negative pressure room. So I think because of that, uh, we've been able to kind of take down the tent um, as it's got gotten hotter and it's kind of a miserable place to be for a long time if you don't have AC outside <laughs> in St. Louis. Yeah. Um, so that's where we are right now, knowing again that things could change at any moment and that might be another necessity if our numbers drastically change. Yeah. And then one thing that you reported on not too long ago was that um, it sounded like people were not always getting tests, although they were recommended for everyone coming in for L&D. That is correct. correct? Um, We had a pretty significant decline rate when we started universal testing. And, you know, I think all of us have seen that article from Columbia and the New England Journal where they had about 14 percent of their patients coming in to deliver with no symptoms were positive. Obviously, New York City is very different from St. Louis in many ways, but also thankfully, including the infectious Mm -hmm. numbers from the pandemic. Um, But we thought that this would be a prudent thing, especially since our patients were coming into such a vulnerable space for other immunocompromised patients to start universal testing. We had over a 30% decline rate for the test um, in the beginning when we started this. And so... um, You know, that was a a project that we, a QI project that we immediately started looking at since that's a pretty significant number. um, We thought we needed to figure out why this was happening and how to, um, you know, decrease the decline rate. Yeah. So um, I think it was a, it was a number of things. Um, I think the way that we were counseling patients on why we were recommending this test and the way that we were um, explaining what would happen if they happened to be positive um, probably had a lot to do with acceptance or, um, you know, non-acceptance of of the test. What we found actually was that the majority of patients who were declining the test were our Black and African-American moms. And obviously that's, that's a huge red flag um, because some sort of disparate, um, you know, care was happening because of that. 
And we took a second week of universal testing and we really wanted to look at why people were saying no. And we you know, gave kind of a bunch of answers as possibilities. Um, one of which was, you know, I don't trust the medical system or I think, you know, that I, uh, having a positive test is gonna lead me to, be, to become stigmatized. Nobody really answered those. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fair because like, who's gonna tell their doctor? <laughs> By the way, I don't yeah, trust yeah. you. <laughs> um, most people yeah, actually chose, right. oh, because I, you know, I'm worried that the test is uncomfortable. Um, but in the third week, we started using a shared decision-making tool where it was a script that we gave our nurses and our doctors to use and a graphic, um, which explained, you know, here are some really high numbers that we've seen in other states. And that this is why we're testing to protect us, the healthcare workers, but also to help protect you and your baby, because if you're positive, we want to help you mm-hmm. prevent transmitting this infection to your baby or your family. And then kind of explaining, you know, here are the things that won't change if you're positive. We're not going to mandator- mandatorily separate you from your baby. Uh, we are not going to, you know, take away all of your support people and labor. Um, and we will continue to treat you, um, you know, with the great, same great, excellent care that we have always been. So kind of a, you know, yeah. reassurance yeah. that this is not something that was going to really change their care. And that intervention actually decreased our decline rate from 30% to 5%. Um, and so, you know, it wasn't like we were saying, oh, it's like totally comfortable. Like we weren't really addressing what was told to us as the right. reason. But right. I think we can yeah. all kind of yeah. understand, yeah. you know, it, it, there was, there's definitely disparities in the way that our patients um, are treated and historical reasons for, um, you know, African-American, Black um, uh, women to distrust the medical system. Um, and so I think we really try to address that head on as much as possible. Yeah, and it's always amazing. Like it sometimes seems like that will take much longer, right? Well, if we have to spend all this time explaining everything, then we can't actually just do the test we need and, and figure it out. But But putting a simple tool in front of everybody can be so helpful and that applies to so many different areas in medicine I think we often don't take time to just back up and and think are we actually explaining this the way exactly exactly and we can fool ourselves into thinking that we're universally testing everybody who comes in but if your decline rate is 30 percent like how dependable are really your results that are coming in for your own protection Mm -hmm. so um it's it's, uh, I think it was a really important intervention and we're still tracking to see kind of what happens uh, every week with the number of patients who deliver compared to the number of patients who've had COVID testing. So something for us to continue to reassess and address. Yeah, that's interesting. We're in, on the GYN side, you know, we've been doing universal testing and um, they have to come in a few days before their surgery and, um, I think there, you know, it also makes a lot of sense. Their surgery could potentially be put off and for very good reasons, both for the staff and for the patient. Like if you have an asymptomatic infection that could actually land you mm-hmm. in the ICU for respiratory compromise that you didn't know you were going to have. I mean, I think people understand that pretty rapidly, but here you're going to have a baby yep. no matter what. Like you can't postpone <laughs> yes. this and labor card. That's kind of, that's one of the <laughs> unique much. things about obstetrics, I think, in this pandemic. Uh, it's hard to make, 
surgical policies, you know, kind of match what is happening with, you know, it's not like I can just put off a 39 week induction if she happens to be positive. She's going to come okay. in in the next week or so in labor, whether we are prepared for it or not. So I think the obstetrical mm -hmm. population has been kind of a tricky group um, to kind of really think through what policies make the most sense, not just which policies make us feel better, like we're safer, um, whether it's true or not. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, thank you for all that you've done and given to the situation. Oh, it's, it's been <laughs> felt across the department. It's a huge sure. group. It's a huge um, group effort for sure. Which is exciting. But let's shift a little bit um, to mm -hmm. your care clinic, because um, I think that's such an important thing that how how has that shifted first of all tell us a little bit about care clinic and then also how things have shifted yeah with this in so times. um for those who don't know the care clinic is our opioid prenatal clinic here at WashU. um i you know i, I did my training in massachusetts where um, the opioid epidemic was pretty up and flaring during my training time and we had um experience mm -hmm. in an opioid prenatal clinic um, set up very similarly to the care clinic right now, women would come in for their kind of full-on prenatal care. They had a psychiatrist who would see them and the providers were all waived to prescribe them buprenorphine, one of the you know, medications that's used to treat uh, opioid use disorder, or they had methadone prescribed by a methadone clinic um, somewhere else, but it was kind of a one-stop shop. And it worked really well. And it was a experience that I was really thankful for in training because uh, you know, these patients can be really hard to, to treat because they come with so many um, barriers and so many problems um, that prevent them from having uh, optimal outcomes and, you know, deliveries, postpartum, etc. And I still distinctly remember when I came here, um, we admitted this patient. Um, she was, she came in, she was withdrawing, she was pregnant, she was devastated because she knew she needed help. Um, we admitted her, started her on methadone. She did great. And then we were stuck. Um, we like had nowhere to discharge her. It wasn't that she was having any issues. She was actually doing wonderful. Um, but there was, there was like no outpatient ability for her to follow up, uh, mostly because of insurance. That was also something new yep. for me to understand, um, you know, what Medicaid covered here and what med Medicaid didn't. Uh, but that was, that was like, she was admitted to the APU service for I think three weeks because of dispo planning, which is horrifying for yeah. many, many reasons. <laughs> um, and so after that, I was like, gosh, like what, what is our follow-up for our patients? Like, are, is, is buprenorphine like an option here? Do we have people who prescribe to pregnant women? And it came up over and over again that um, there, there really wasn't yeah. much of an option. And I don't, I don't know that I went into medicine to be like, I'm going to treat opioid use disorder. <laughs> you know, it, it was, it was yeah. kind of a, yeah. a, a situational like, well, I guess I better figure out how to make this work real fast here because we uh, we need it. Um, that's kind mm -hmm. of how <laughs> the care clinic came to be. Yeah, um, yeah. 
that's interesting too. And, and potentially because you had been somewhere else. The model that, worked. Yeah, the model worked really well. And I can yeah. see from that experience yes. that there is a solution to this um, that could be really helpful and beneficial. So uh, that is kind of how it started. Um, we opened our doors after about a year of planning uh, with you know, perinatal behavioral health and psychiatry. They're co-located in the clinic with us, which is we, we could not do what we do without them there. Um, we opened our doors yeah. in June of 2018. Yeah. And we have, you know, really increased, um, number one, the number of patients that have come through the clinic, um, which is, you know, great, because I think before we, we just had like very, very suboptimal dispo planning for a lot of these patients. And more important, is the usual sorry, entry, oh, I'm sorry, is the usual entry, is the usual entry coming from having been discharged as an inpatient or how, um, you know, how do they come to yeah, find the care it's clinic. from a variety of entry points so discharge inpatient discharge is a big one you know lots of women show up to whack or um, parky tower and withdrawal high using saying i'm pregnant i need help um that's mm-hmm. a huge one um other ways are they get referred from the resident clinic or um, even you know our usual referring clinics around the st louis area who now know about us and know that we have support here for um, any patient who has OUD. Um, And then some patients walk off the street. Like we've had a handful of patients who've been like my friend, my sister, my whatever, you know, was treated here and I'm pregnant and I need, I need you guys to help me. So we've had a handful of patients who just walk in off the street because they knew about us. So kind of from everywhere, (laughs) everybody's kind of coming into the clinic. and uh, so, you know, I think we've seen a lot of patients come through. Um, we've treated over a hundred patients at this point in the two years that, that we've been open. Um, but in addition to that, um, I have seen our residents really just, you know, exponentially grow in their ability to treat patients with OUD. I am just so proud of them really. Mm-hmm. Um, to go from, I think, where we started back in 2016, where 30 milligrams of methadone was what everybody got, and that was it, to see going onto service, and the chief was like, oh, yeah, she came in withdrawing, we started her on some subby text, we were titrating her up, she, you know, just completely comfortable, and completely, <laughs> yeah. com- you know, just knows how to treat um, patients with OUD like it's any other disease. Um, that's really been really, really just heartwarming and, and really, um, you know, proud for me to, for me to see our residents grow and, and take that on. And many of them have gotten their um, buprenorphine waivers to continue that um, after oh, residency, wow. which I, again, I'm just really, really proud of how open everyone is um, to treating this. Wow. And huge effects for not only the mom, but also the baby, yeah. right? So how, what, what, uh, have you seen changes then in terms of disposition for the babies or yeah. how, how the side effects or like downstream effects are positive? Yeah, so um, we know that, you know, untreated OUD in pregnancy causes all kinds, like every morbidity, right? Like preterm labor, P-prom, yeah. abruption, stillbirth, preeclampsia, Chorion amnitis, all the amnitis <laughs> everywhere. 
um, and maternal mm-hmm. death, you know, from overdose, all of those things are associated with OUD and pregnancy. All of those things decrease with um, treatment with either buprenorphine or, or methadone. And I think we've seen also the same sort of cultural shift that we've seen in OB towards moms with OUD. I think we've seen it on the pediatric side as well. Um, So Haley Friedman, she's one of our neonatologists. She actually, funny story, did fellowship with me. She was a neonatologist uh, fellow at Tufts and I was a OBGYN um, and and MFM fellow there. But she actually came came here. She's on faculty uh, with newborn medicine. And she kind of took on the neo, the newborn portion of um, maternal OUD. And I think we've seen some great cultural shifts um, in the way that OU, you know, NAS babies are treated in children's uh, and on, um, you know, in the, in the well baby nursery as well. And so I think we've, um, we've seen some really tremendous uh, changes for the better that have that have happened in the last couple of years on both the maternal and the, the neonatal side. That's awesome. Now, how often does this clinic mm-hmm. run? Do you have it every yeah every week every day? So pre COVID, we pre COVID it was a twice a day <laughs> clinic. So we had it Monday afternoons oh, okay. where it was. Um, a physician, so it was me, Molly Stout, or Ebony Carter, and the resident team, where I was kind of your traditional one-on-one prenatal care. And then a second day uh, during the week, it was a group prenatal care um, sort of uh, platform. So just like the diabetes mm-hmm. prenatal mm-hmm. care, group prenatal care, or yeah. teen clinic, same thing, but with OUD. And um, we had just started that this year, um, you know, thinking that this was going to be a fantastic addition because we were kind of busting at the seams. Yes, put yes. more people together in a room. Um, it'll be great. Unfortunately, <laughs> that wrong. is obviously no longer happening because it is the antithesis of, of all oh. the recommendations for COVID. So we're back down to just one day a right. week and um, kind of pretty full right now on that half a day a week because we're kind of absorbing yeah. you know, everybody who, who would have otherwise been in group prenatal care. So I think across the board, just like everybody else struggling a little bit right now with COVID. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I think as part of recovery, community, uh, human connection, feeling like you're in a group and supported that human touch factor. I think that's essential to recovery from, um, you know, opioid use disorder or any substance use disorder. And that is unfortunately a huge part of recovery that's been sort of robbed from all of our patients. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the the OUD and the SUD sort of uh, community has really been struck hard by COVID, you know? Um, It's taken away a lot of uh, the ability to cope and to have support um, during this time. Has there been any attempts for telemedicine type of group? Yeah, group it's a really there? good question. Um, that is something that we are actively looking into. So one of our therapists, who's a recovery coach, she actually has done group pre, like group uh, recovery coaching before, not with like pregnant mm-hmm. patients, but mm-hmm. just you know prior um, and via telemedicine. Yeah, and so you know right now group prenatal care 
in general from our, all the clinics is slated to open with, as with the next the next step. I don't know if we're ever gonna get to the next step since all our numbers are going in the wrong yeah. direction right now, but it's, it's kind of like the next step yeah. is, is the group prenatal care is supposed to reopen. Um, if that doesn't yeah. happen uh, anytime soon, um, I think that is definitely going to be uh, something that we need to explore if it's acceptable to our patients to do telemedicine group natal care. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so many potentials, yeah. right? And the, the, <laughs> the practical nature of, of trying to open everything back up and get back to normal is, is so strong. Like we wanted. I don't know, taking the time to develop something new in the midst of a pandemic, it's also super yeah. hard. So yeah, I, to cope, I have mm. basically repeated to myself as a mantra, in catastrophe, there is opportunity. <laughs> that is the only way that we can kind of move forward is to understand there's, there's this is this is just what's going on. And we just have to figure out in what way can we opportunize kind of you know, the way things have to be to best suit our needs and our patients' needs. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, um, I'd love to hear a little bit more too. I know our listeners would love to hear a little more about your own personal story. Like you said, you didn't quite imagine <laughs> the open clinic as being your career mm -hmm. development, which is amazing, but, um, you kind of back us up a little further. So how did you get into medicine in the first place? And tell us your, sure. your... Um, I'm trying to think how, how far back I want to back up here. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think, I think I can start. I mean, so I was born in China. Um, I, my family immigrated to the United States when I was six. Um, my dad, my dad had did his, um, graduate school was doing his graduate school here in the states he um, was doing a mm -hmm. double phd because he will always be <laughs> more impressive than any person i know he was doing a double phd at columbia <laughs> nyu and mathematics and computer science at the same time um and then oh i was in china <laughs> right exactly what <laughs> i was i was in um china with my mom and my grandparents and um, uh, Tiananmen Square happened. So that was in June mm. of 1989. Yeah. And maybe to even back up a little bit more, um, my dad's family, prior to the Cultural Revolution, they were a family of intellectuals, you know, journalists, physicians, scientists, who one family member, unfortunately, was just on the wrong side of politics during the Cultural Revolution. And so his entire family, my dad was, I think, nine years old at the time, his entire family got sent down to be what they call re-educated in the countryside. It's just hard labor, like labor camps, yeah. essentially. Yeah. And so my dad was yeah. nine. He had two younger siblings. Um, he became the man of the house because his older brother and his parents were sent off to the labor camps. And he had no school from the time that the Cultural Revolution started to essentially when everything reopened um, when he was in his mid twenties. And so he taught himself everything and um, tested into a, a good college in China and then essentially tested into the first class that the Chinese government sent abroad 
um, to study mm. uh, in graduate programs um, in the United States. He was one of 15 that the entire country sent out during that time. And so uh, I think, you know, you think about these things in your life, like what made me who I am today? Um, I think knowing the story of my dad, who essentially went from nothing, but was given the opportunity um, and from that opportunity took it and ran with it and gave me and my brother and my whole family, you know, all of the privileges that we have. That's probably one of the uh, defining sort of, you know, kind of things for me. Um, yeah. I think if you are able to level the playing field, if you're able to give people opportunity, they will show you who they are and they will take it and they will mm -hmm. rise. So, you know, Tiananmen Square happened. It was the Chinese Communist Party cracking down again. And my dad was like, nope, we have to get out of the country. And so my mom mm -hmm. and me immigrated over when I was six uh, to Harlem. And um, we, you know, as refugees of the Chinese government into the United States, essentially. Um, and uh, my dad finished his PhDs. He moved down to Texas um, as a professor. He um, got tenure and we've obviously been here ever since. And my, you know, my dad is like very much ivory tower academic sort of scientist. <laughs> and I think... I just thought my entire life, like, this is what you did, right? Like, you went to college, you yeah. went to grad school, you got your PhD, and you had a research career. Like, that's what you did. Like, two right, PhDs. Right, exactly, maybe. you know. Maybe three. <laughs> like, this is just what everybody did. Um, and I <laughs> essentially grew up on college campuses my entire life. Um, and so I went into, I went to college with that thought, like, this is just what you do. You go to college, and then you get your PhD, um, but I, my, uh, you know, mentor in college whose lab I was working in, uh, was an MD PhD. And I don't know if this is like a good thing or a bad thing, but one day he was like, I really think you should think about medical school instead of grad school. I, I'm not really sure yeah. if that means that I was like a really crappy lab student <laughs> <laughs> or what, <laughs> um, but he took me and he was a heme ong pediatrician and he kind of took me you know, on rounds with him into the hospital. And I loved it. I thought it was awesome to kind of see the other side of everything that we were doing in lab and kind of switched everything and changed everything and, and went into medicine. Um, my dad to this day uh, is like disappointed. <laughs> like the only parent in the entire world who's disappointed that their child went to medical school. You know, because he's like, oh, you know, like you, you aren't a real scientist. You're, you're just a technician. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think he's come around. I think he's come around and he understands. But um, that's kind of how I got into medicine, sort of a weird sort of non-expected way um, in when I sort of fell in love with, um, you know, seeing my college mentor be on the rounds and take care of these kids um, and yeah. their families. And, uh, you know, went into med school was like the two things that I'm not going to do is OBGYN and psychiatry. Um, here I am running a prenatal <laughs> obesity disorder clinic. <laughs> so never say never. Um, but, you know, obviously fell in love with women's health and the advocacy and 
uh, the importance of empowering women in their own healthcare. Um, you know, love the medicine side of uh, obstetrics, went into MFM, um, and here I am. <laughs> That's kind of a yeah. very long yeah. 100 no, year <laughs> explanation <laughs> of how I got here. It's so great, though. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful story, and I love hearing about your dad and um and I think these are these are the important things that drive us from when we're little, right? To mm-hmm. to keep showing up and kind of working towards something that's bigger than you could ever have thought. Yeah, it's awesome. I think I think story. about you know my kids' lives compared to what my parents had, um, and it's mm. it's like I can't even I cannot even imagine. You know what I mean? It's just so crazy that in two yeah. generations, yeah. this is this is the like difference that has made. Wow. Um, so you and your husband and kids are now yeah. in St. Louis, and I know you've been um, a huge advocate for our women here. And um, can you speak a little bit, because we're coming up to an election, a pretty important one in August, right, for Medicaid mm-hmm. expansion. And it's possible that everyone who's listening already Please. <laughs> but it's also possible that there may be some people who question yeah. why. <laughs> so... Maybe you could yeah. speak to that a little bit uh, you know, from your perspective. I, I think I've had this conversation so many times. Um, you know, we, <laughs> we're we like, oh, gosh, like the United States, our maternal mortality rate is so terrible. Our infant mortality rate is so terrible. It's so horrible. What can we do? Um, I mean, I think it's pretty straightforward, right? Like you give people medical care. Yeah. And you give them preventative care. Um, this this is something that St. Louis has taught me. Um, I I was I coming from Massachusetts where I did all of my training where mm. there is universal health care. This is not even something that I understood. Not something that I even knew. You know, mm. I did my I did my residency yeah. and fellowship at Tufts, which is in the middle of Chinatown. Uh, served a huge Chinese American population there. Um, I you know thinking that I, I'm, bi- I'm bilingual and I thought I was super cool going in there bilingual. As it turns out, I don't know actually any Chinese words for any parts of the female body or <laughs> medicine. So it's a huge learning endeavor for me. But everybody had insurance, right? You know, that was never a problem. Yeah. Um, if they needed care, they could wow. get it. Uh, it wasn't like, oh, you don't have insurance. Your insurance won't pay for this. We have to pre-off this. We have to they just had insurance it was not even a question and so Mm -hmm. learning Mm -hmm. about Medicaid and the fact that some people just don't have insurance for the majority of their lives was really eye-opening to me when I started here um you know as MFM you get these consults who are like I have you know I had some sort of you you look at them and you're like you have this giant sternotomy um can you tell me mm-hmm. about that? <laughs> it's, it's not anywhere in your medical record. Um, and they're like, oh yeah, I had some heart surgery when I was like three, but I haven't seen a doctor since then because I don't have insurance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That should not happen. Um, and if we are continuing to like send, you know, patients into the hospital, only because they are desperate and possibly dying and they don't have insurance before yeah. then to, to, to 
take part in preventative health and health maintenance like what do you expect our maternal mortality and our infant mortality and just mortality rates in general to be like you you have to take care of your constituents health um, if you want healthy outcomes so I <laughs> you know it's yeah, it's right. Simple. It's, simple. it's much cheaper to pay yeah. for, you know, a couple of pap smears and a leap here or there compared to like one of your surgeries. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or, the, or, or I uh, will just throw in, you know, some of the newer biologic agents that we have to, you know, potentially prolong people's lives with cervical cancer. But oh my gosh, <laughs> if we could just have present, prevented the disease yes. in the first place. Maybe right? an HPV vaccine. And, and not there. to mention that. Yes. Half, you know, half the people cannot get access to Avastin or Pembrolizumab yeah. or, you know, these, it's, yeah. yeah that's so yeah. frustrating, <laughs> right? Because it yeah. should, it should seem so obvious that even if you were speaking from just a purely economical standpoint, it's cheaper to pay for preventative care than end of life care. Um, yeah. But anyways, that's why I think Medicaid expansion uh, is important. Well, and, and just to look at the, you know, in, what is it, the 2013-14 data where um, the states that yeah. did expand Medicaid, their maternal mortality rates dropped yeah. or didn't go yeah. up, let's say, didn't go exactly. up, right? Um, so the data is that's an, absolutely that's there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's an impressive figure that... Um, most people without even two PhDs can understand, can understand <laughs> yes. you know? <laughs> yes. And so I, oh. you know, I think in healthcare, like we're wringing our hands about a lot of these problems, you know, like mortality rates in our most vulnerable groups and health disparities and racism and all this stuff where there is very straightforward action that we can take, you know, mm -hmm. let's stop wringing our hands and crying let's take the action let's make it make it happen yeah and yeah so everyone get out there please vote tell your friends <laughs> tell your family. Um, because you know potentially what we don't do enough is talk about these things with our family yeah. members and you know I think that I've kind of been dealing with with this, my own self in the, the past year, like how I'm not a very vocal person about things, but you know, um, gosh, this is a very impactful way, you know, how we're constantly learning how important our vote is uh, and how getting out there and, and being advocates for what you believe. It's so it important. It is so important. And it is like the only way that we can survive as a nation is if we vote for the things that are important to us. Yeah. Wow, Jeannie. Well, thanks. We're going to, um, maybe you can send us some, um, like some of those things I've seen you post, um, a couple of really cool charts yeah, and graphs absolutely. that are really helpful. We can put that out with the podcast and, and just get the word out. Absolutely. Please vote everyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, so that's wellness in and of itself, but here we are in the wellness podcast and we're still, um, um, you know, I think, I'm kind of sick of defining what wellness is because I know it's different for everyone, but, you know, just in terms of being a busy mom and doctor and um, advocate and all of the things that you are and do so wonderfully, um, how do you 
like those mantras you said, you can repeat them to yourself. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, other things that you do to just kind of keep yourself yeah. well and keep your family. Well. Oh, it's hard. Um, I don't, I don't know <laughs> that I have the answer to any of this. You know, um, I think what I've learned, uh, I think what I've learned quite a bit in the last couple of years is that, um, you know, work-life balance and wellness. It's it's not that you are perfectly 50-50% balanced mm-hmm. or 100% well um, 100% of the time. I think, I think what we should aim for is an average, right? An average of balance and an, and an <laughs> average of doing well. Um, because what, what I've learned that, you know, at least at this point in my life works is I know that at some point um, my family's gonna need me more than work. And at some point, um, yeah. my work is going to need me more than my family. Um, and so at any one particular moment, you're going to probably feel off kilter and off balance. Um, but what you need to strive for is to understand that overall, that average needs to be, um, you know, well balanced and in a, in a healthy balance that works for you. Um, I, I think that's kind of been one of my most important lessons. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, and obviously people who are thinking about coming here, um, you know, to St. Louis to train, um, you know, we want to help those trainees see that that balance is not going to happen all the time. This is a place you're going to work really hard, but I feel like uh, hopefully this is an environment where we can all kind of share our struggles in that as well. Like it's not, that's not an easy fix. No. There's not an easy answer, but, but you mentioned something before too, that I think it's so important, like for the patients, but also for us, right. The, the community, the human touch, the human like interaction, yeah. right. We have to have that with each other too. Absolutely. And I think this, um, you know, our department, uh, has really tried to make that, um, an essential and important part, um, of everything that we do. It's, it's, that humanity is the most important thing, I think, and that's across the board in our department. Yeah, it's it, it's definitely palpably more obvious lately, I would mm-hmm. say, right? Maybe we're all showing up with a little bit more oomph for vigor about like what are our goals for being here, right? When it it actually for the first time in our lives was a bit of a scary place yes. to be, right? Yes. <laughs> Nothing like a um, global pandemic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know that that um that and George Floyd and very very relevant things for us here in St. Louis city and county in Missouri um, are things that we grapple with and are important for us to look at head on and talk about how we're going to address um, as a department. Mm-hmm. And I I've been really. Um, it's made me be really proud of, of being faculty here. Well, I am super lucky to call you a colleague. So that's the really same, Thank Andrea, you. the same. <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, well, let's use this last bit of nap time to give you a little bit of a break. So <laughs> you should go and um, enjoy some, some of that quiet time. And, well, um, thank you so much for having yeah. me. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, I'll talk to you soon. Talk soon. All right. Bye-bye.